Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind you about the Power Hour's email account. Now, Travis, I know this is your favorite thing, it so is. tell us about the email account. Thepowerhour at heritage.org. That is. And super important because we want to hear from folks. Yes. The account has been open for about a week now, and we're getting some great feedback and suggestions. So please, please, please reach out to us. Let's start a conversation. And again, write it down, T-H-E, Power Hour at Heritage.com, the Power Hour at Heritage.com. So, Rachel, this is your second Power Hour. What do you think? It is my second Power Hour. Um, I enjoy being here. You did great the last time. Now uh, we expect you to be great this time as well. So I hope you're up for it. Pressure's on. Jack, this is the part of the show where you try to privatize something that can't be privatized. <laughs> well, you, did, you, you said Heritage.com. We are not a for-profit organization. We are a, oh my are God. a I'm 501c3 sorry. organization. We're an educational organization, Jack. We are not a .com. That is right. My God, I can't believe I did that. The Power Hour you're at Heritage.org. You're just trying to org. privatize everything. This is your, your dark web account you're trying to do. <laughs> to be clear, Heritage is a private organization, um, but we are a C3 with a .org email, so right. I apologize Not to everyone. Not for profit. For so what is it? One more, one more time for the people? The Power Hour at Heritage.org. Great. Perfect. Awesome. Thank Nailed you, guys. It. Travis, are you well? I'm doing well. Are you as excited as I am about this podcast today? I am once again full of energy. Well, you should be, because the power hour is about to be lit by nuclear energy. Nice, bro. In case you didn't know, Travis and Rachel, I love nuclear energy. I spent a huge portion of my career thinking about it, writing about it. In fact, if it was up to me, this podcast would be called the Nuclear Power Hour. But alas, it's not. However, as the host, I do have the wherewithal to make nuclear power a topic of conversation every now and again. And that now and again is today. So we're going to talk about nuclear power, why it's awesome, some policy challenges around nuclear power, including America's dependence on some Russian nuclear services. We're going to get an insider's view on nuclear regulation. Now, to help us learn about all of these things, we literally have the perfect guest. Welcome, Paul Dickman. Welcome, Paul. Oh, thanks, Jack. Well, Paul is a senior fellow at Argonne National Laboratory. Now, if you don't know about Argonne, stay tuned. It's an amazing place with an amazing history, and we're going to learn more about that, I hope. While that's impressive enough, Paul has done so much more. He's held senior positions at the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In fact, Paul was Chairman Dale Klein's uh, chief of staff. Paul plays any number of important roles at the American Nuclear Society. Basically, if it's happened in nuclear energy, Paul has worked on it. But most important, at least to me, is that Paul is a friend and a colleague. He's provided invaluable insight into me over the years. And, uh, Paul, thank you for that, and thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Jack. That was a very gracious introduction. <laughs> well, it could've, I could have gone on, and perhaps I will before it's over. 
Um, Hopefully not. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk about nuclear energy today. Uh, Believe you me. But first, Paul, I hope you don't uh, hang up or leave the power hour for me doing this. But you have a hobby that I want to talk about. (laughs) You're a winemaker. Am I correct about that? Do you make wine? Yes, I am. Atomicwine.com. Atomicwine.com. How does that work? How do you... How does a nuclear guy end up making wine? Okay, so first of all, you have to uh, have appreciated wine. And um, I kind of got involved in this, going to visit some nuclear facilities in France, believe it or not. And I got curious about it. And I said, well, you know, how do they make this stuff? And uh, academically, I'm a chemist. So all chemists obviously try to figure out what, what, uh, how things work. So I started taking classes in winemaking. And... Um, you can buy kits, and I made, uh, first kit I made was actually an Austrian Grunewald Wiener, and it was very good. The second one I made, my wife thought I mixed the cat box along with the, uh, <laughs> the content. So that went down the drain. Anyway, so bottom line is, is I got involved in this and, and um, started class, taking classes in, uh, in winemaking and enology uh, down into, in Charlottesville. And uh, so I kind of got involved in that, and, and then ultimately as a kind of my my first retirement, which is from the NRC, um, I gave myself a gift of what's called a custom crush, which is where you basically go down and you design a barrel of wine. And I designed a barrel of wine, and I was able to secure grapes from um, a colleague who was actually a nuclear fuels engineer in California, Napa Valley. And we brought the grapes from Napa Valley to Virginia, and we crushed them at a place called Vint Hill. And uh, so that's how it started. So my first... Uh, Variety was uh, was called Schrodinger's Cab, so those of you who are physicists will appreciate what what I'm saying there. So even those of us who are not physicists appreciate it. So anyway, so that's how I kind of got launched into it, and then I periodically make a barrel of whatever. Um, so I've done you know uh, uh, GSMs, uh, rosés, Chardonnays. It's a uh, it's Jack. It's an expensive hobby more than anything else. All hobbies seem to me to be expensive ones. Um, <laughs> e- I've, I have seen, I have found that out over the years. Now I need to ask before we're going to move on to nuclear energy, I promise. Yeah. But when you're crushing the, the, the grapes and I'm sure everyone asks you this, do you do the whole Lucille ball bit where you, you know, get into the barrel and your bare feet and, and jump around? Well, I personally have not, but that's not to say I haven't helped people climb in. Okay. <laughs> hey, if you ever need a helper, I am always game for crushing grapes with my bare feet. Just, just putting that out there. Okay. What size shoe do you wear? Uh, 11 and a half. Why? Oh, so perfect. I can crush okay, a lot good. of grapes. All right. You're hired. Well, very good. Very good. Um, now, one last question about this. Um, is there an allegorical connection between winemaking and nuclear energy? Like, can one inform the other? For example, like, I'm guessing you don't want to spill either, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, <clears throat> gee, you're the first person that's ever asked me that. Uh, I would say that uh, in the history of science, those who, who have uh, studied physics and atomic energy have probably usually indulged in wine too. So um, I guess <laughs> right, there is enough. a connection there. Well, there was, was the whole French thing. Right. I was going to say, from the consumer point of view, I feel like a really nice fine wine, it's an acquired taste. So is nuclear. It's, you know, your first impression is not going to be, oh, wow, love nuclear power. 
can't get enough of that nuclear power. It takes a lot of education, a lot of refinement to get to that point where you say, hmm, I actually do. I love it. So um, I like your take on there because the logical conclusion of that is that I'm educated and refined. Exactly. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to imply that. That's clearly wrong. But I, yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Enough about that. Let's talk nuclear energy. All right, Paul, we talked about how you got involved in winemaking. How did you get involved in nuclear energy? You know, the the old joke about, uh, well, I was lucky. And, And the old joke about, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Actually, that wasn't true. In my case, I wasn't really that hardworking. I just was lucky. So, um, and it started off with uh, I, I undergraduate major was actually history of science. Okay, um, and you know, and I really was fascinated with the fact that in history, when people study history, they usually look at events like you know people, people and places and things that happened. But in in the history of science, you actually look at at advances in in understanding and. So along the way, what happened was is I ended up getting an undergraduate degree in history of science, which you couldn't really do much with. So I went off to grad school, and um, I had a fairly strong background in chemistry and physics and other things. But So one day I looked at this course catalog, and they had a class in nuclear chemistry. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting, So, but I didn't have the qualifications. And so I called the prof, and he basically said, look, you know, if you sign up for this class and you take uh, physical chemistry at the same time, uh, we'll let you in. He says, and then he says, and oh, by the way, I've got a grant you can work on. Well, that was a done deal, okay? So <laughs> I signed up. But it also turned out that he needed one more student. Otherwise, it would have canceled the class. There's always a catch, isn't there? Yeah, there's always a catch. So anyway, so, so anyway, I ended up graduating with a master's degree in nuclear chemistry and physics. And, um, and along the way, I ended up, uh, uh, well, in the interim, I actually spent a, a summer as a graduate student uh, at the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which at that time was a brand new agency. And I was studying uh, uranium and uh, nuclear waste disposal, spent field waste disposal. Then I ended up going to the Idaho lab where they were newly formed uh, radioactive waste management division. Later, I went transferred from there down to the what was then called the Nevada test site during the Reagan administration. Um, where I ran environmental research projects in the waste management and uh, spent a lot of time, basically, I spent most of my career in radioactive waste. So, and um, from there I went to, to Albuquerque, worked on a WIP program, then back to Yucca Mountain. I think I met you along the way somewhere, Jack. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> somewhere, <laughs> somewhere between Albuquerque and, and Vegas, I think it was. It, well, <laughs> probably. I anyway, so, ride. Yeah, I arrived. <laughs> so, and then, then what happened was is that um, I, was, uh, I was a deputy director of office of policy in the uh, NNSA, the Department of Energy's National Security Administration, and I, I specialized in, in a variety of things. One of the things that... Uh, I did do some nonproliferation policy, and uh, a friend of mine uh, during the, uh, uh, the Bush administration was appointed to be chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. That was Dale Klein. And so when he went over there, I went over to be his chief of staff, and we spent four years at the, uh, at the commission. And um, that was during the first nuclear renaissance, if you recall, 2006, 2007 time frame. Yes. So we saw all the ups and downs uh, with that. Um, I, when, uh, when Dale left the commission, I actually went to work for Argonne, um, but stayed in the Washington, D.C. area. And I have been doing this ever since. Uh, and along the way, um, Fukushima happened. The nuclear renaissance of you know, 1.0 kind of collapsed. Um, and now we're seeing 2.0 or maybe even 2.5.0 uh, as we emerge with uh, 
new power plants and new designs and new concepts. And so uh, it's kind of a fun to see this, uh, this renaissance occur again. And more importantly, we have a fairly good understanding of what made the last one go bad. So there we are. Well, we are definitely going to get in, into that here in a little bit. That's um, going to be a big part of what we talk about today. Mm-hmm. Before we get there, though, you've done everything. And like everything that sort of runs across our minds when we think about nuclear energy, you've, you've been involved in one way or, or another, the, 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 the successes in, in nuclear, the, some things that people think of as failures. I'm curious, um, what are, what's a highlight? for you from a professional standpoint as you've gone through all of this? You know, it's kind of weird. Um, you know, when I, I said earlier, I was kind of lucky in, in that um, one of the worst jobs I ever had was actually helping shut down the nuclear weapons complex. But it was also one of the more, more interesting jobs I ever had because I met so many people. And when I worked in, this is, I know this is a little bit off the track for probably nuclear energy discussion. But as you know, at the end of the Cold War, when we, we started shutting down the, the nuclear weapons programs, uh, we closed our plants and facilities in Florida and Ohio and several other places. So I was part of that organization that did that. And, but as a result of that, I ended up having to work a lot with, with communities, with people, with um, politicians and regulators. Uh, and I got to know a ton of people uh, along that way. And that actually helped me understand how Washington politics works, because everything that we did in, when it comes to uh, dealing with the uh, closing of plants and bracking, because this is essentially DOE's equivalent of a BRAC, mm-hmm. uh, was political. And uh, so I was fortunate in the sense that uh, what we were doing, and we were very fortunate to have some very senior politicians uh, who understood that this is what had to be done. And so we were able to to be successful in closing this facility. So, so to me, that was one of my highlights. And then I would also say, I have to say, look, uh, working for Dale Klein was, was, was pretty amazing. Dale's a great guy. He had, he had the right vision to transform and modernize the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of four years, I would say that we certainly, we improved the, we improved it, uh, we modernized it. Um, and um, it is what it is today in part because of what Dale did. And so I'm, I'll claim, I'll, I'll take some credit for that too. Because of what he did, and despite what maybe one or two others have done since, I would argue. <laughs> but we don't need to get into that, at least not yet. Maybe we will in a little bit, a little bit later. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you're doing now. What, what goes on at Argonne now? What, what's your role? How does it relate to, to nuclear energy today? Well, you know, uh, well, first of all, everybody has to understand that Argonne is the first uh, nuclear Energy Laboratory. It was actually founded by Enrico Fermi, the person who first split the atom in the U.S. Um, and built the first uh, first nuclear reactor, all called Chicago Pile Number One, which was actually built at the University of Chicago. Uh, probably not a good place to, um, you know, to build a nuclear reactor in downtown Chicago. So they moved it. I think it's the perfect place to build a nuclear <laughs> reactor. <laughs> probably, <laughs> but in those days they decided, well, they they need more space. They had, you know. It, like all college campuses, I'm sure they had a parking problem even back in the right. 1940s. So anyway, so after the Second World War, Fermi uh, left Los Alamos and he returned to Chicago, and uh, they moved the uh, they moved the, the, the Chicago pile and they, they created a, a, a nuclear uh, laboratory in at, at Argonne. Um, and 
historically, argon really is the foundation of almost every single nuclear reactor design that's in existence today. Uh, and they can take credit for almost everything. All the PWRs, the boiling water reactors, those liquid metal reactors, all of those originated from designs created by the people at Argonne. And the Argonne test facility was actually in Idaho. So there was an Argonne West, and, and a lot of the test facilities were out there. And one of the most famous ones, of course, is the EBR-1, which was the very first nuclear reactor to produce electricity. And it was a liquid metal reactor, and that was produced in 1954. 52? Anyway, it's, uh, so, so that's, like I said, the first, the first electricity ever generated from nuclear power was an argon reactor designed and tested in Idaho. And so, oh, yeah, what I do today? Well, today I, um, I work on a combination of things. Uh, largely, it's in the nonproliferation area, uh, uh, working with the NSA, and this nexus between what we call civil nuclear and national security, because, you know, Today, you cannot have a nuclear energy program unless it aligns and conforms with your national security objectives as well. And those are driven by the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Act of the United States, and a variety of other things. And so that's what I spend time. And then I also, as you know, Jack, I spend a lot of time working on, on isotopes because that's one of my new passions is, you know, what do we do? What people may not realize is that uh, the United States imports a tremendous number of, of isotopes, both for energy purposes and also for medical purposes from Russia. And, you know, if we were to sanction the Russians' uh, nuclear enterprise, Rosatom, that would cause a problem, not just for uranium imports, but for things like cobalt-60 and stable isotopes that are an essential part of our industry today. And they're, they're the major supplier. Let's talk about Russia a little bit. That was something I wanted to get to, and, and you brought it up. Can you talk us through a little bit about our dependence on Russia and, and Russian fuel services and not just fuel services? Because I think we need to think of the two distinctly. Maybe, maybe that's the wrong approach, but I think that we need to keep fuel services as a distinct thing from other nuclear services um, or, or nuclear products. Can you, though, talk through us sort of how that all fits together? Well, at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. started to shut down its nuclear weapons complex. And also, but remember, that complex was also the enrichment element. The U.S. at one point in time supplied about 70% of all the enrichment, enriched uranium material in the world. We were the single largest provider of nuclear fuel. What happened was is that this became, there was an effort to basically privatize that, take it away, and, and become in a more competitive market. Well, it turns out that in places like Russia, and uh, particularly in Russia, uh, they had a capacity, and they were state-owned enterprise, so they could basically uh, make up uh, that market, and they did. And to, to be blunt about it, the U.S. is dependent upon Russia for uh, uh, a lot of it's uh, enriched material. Uh, we also buy from the French. But uh, to a large extent, uh, the U.S. domestic capability is, is actually small and had atrophied over time. So the Russians became a major supplier globally of enriched materials because that was basically how they transitioned their, their nuclear weapons program into a civilian program. And they still produce enriched material today, and which we buy from them today. That has not been sanctioned yet, although there are some proposals to do that. 
or the, the same. T- yeah, go ahead. Uh, let's talk nuclear fuel for a couple minutes, um, because I think that, that there's some texture to that story that's worth getting into, which is it. I would argue it wasn't just that um, that Russia was state owned and state owned enterprises and you know all that. It was that it was a function of American policy that helped lead to the case where we are now in terms of things like megatons to megawatts, which was a great nonproliferation program. No one would argue or few people would argue against it being a nonproliferation success. But that completely undermined any market um, any market for market pressure for domestic enrichment to move forward because through that government program, Russia was supplying half of our uranium for two decades. Correct. Um, and you know we're, we're we're still dealing with the ramifications from a commercial standpoint of that, which we were sort of working through, and then you know Russia began on this authoritarian. Um, trajectory that has manifest most recently with its invasion of Ukraine, which I think brought this this whole dynamic to a a point of having to choose, like what direction are we going to go? Um, so anyway, I, I think that's an important part of that story. Yeah, uh, you know, the megatons megawatts was an essential part of a nonproliferation policy which we implemented because we were able to basically uh, the Russians were downblending uranium they took out of their decommissioned nuclear weapons and were using it to provide civilian nuclear power. So that was a tremendous success, and it was very successful. But at the same time, as you pointed out, it allowed allowed us to basically allow, well, our, our domestic capabilities atrophied because of that. Right. And and to be blunt about it, uh, one of the key parts is that, um, what you have to understand is, is that the origin of your, of your material, how it's enriched, also creates an obligation. Right. And so the, uh, uh, when the U.S. dominated the fuels market, we also were able to dominate how that material is used and or exported or transferred because we had we, they, this is obligated material. So today we have no domestic, we have very, excuse me, we, have, we do have domestic capability, but it's using foreign technology. Right. So, so we are now on yeah. the other end of that obligation equation that we can't do certain things with that fuel because of exactly. obligations under international law. Exactly. So we actually have obligations that we have to fulfill for countries that basically are, you know, they're non-nuclear weapon states, and so we have to adhere to their their obligations as to what they expect us to do with that material. Okay? So uh, where we are right now, and I think, Jack, this is a key element, is, is that, as you know, before Congress, there are several options to look at how do we restart a domestic enrichment capability in this country using an indigenous U.S. technology. And the question is, do you want to get into the low enrichment um, process, which is really essentially what Europe and and the Urenco USA do, or do you want to go for a higher enrichment material, which ultimately could allow you to then to produce for domestic purposes, particularly our military purposes, a higher enriched material, which which has no obligations. And and that's really kind of one of the debates going on right now. All of this gets back to the fact is, is that in the civilian sector, um, the Russians still continue to dominate in terms of supply, and they will probably for, for some time. Uh, but we need to make decisions, some hard decisions, as to what we're going to be doing for our own domestic indigenous technology. 
And that's and it ain't going to be cheap. No, and it's not going to be an easy decision to make either. Um, you know, I've, I, you know, you and I have talked about this, and 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 I'm sort of developing my own perspective, but I'm I'm pretty sure I am where I'm going to be. And you know, I'm I've always been skeptical of government getting involved in building out programs that are meant to achieve a commercial outcome. I just think it always fails. Mm. And I hear folks always saying, well, nuclear is different, this, that. And I don't think nuclear is different. Um, I think, and we can get in, you know, we, we, we can have a discussion about why that might be the case. Well, I think you and I have argued this point several times. We, we have. Because <laughs> we're good friends. We, we have. And, um, and in fact, we're going to talk about the nuclear renaissance or lack thereof here in a little bit. So maybe we can uh, talk about that more. But on this case, on this issue of enrichment. Like, I totally get that we need a domestic enrichment capacity, and we need it for national security purposes, if nothing else. I also get that we don't want to be, we don't want to be dependent on Russian uranium fuel. Um, I totally get that. In fact, my perspective, my position on that has changed over the years, whereas pre previously, I was more sympathetic to, you know, if the Russians can supply us with cheap uranium, then have at it. Um, i you know, in hindsight, I was wrong about that. And now I think we need to make some sort of policy change that gives the private side the, um, the assurances that it can invest to fill that void so that we're not dependent on Russia. Um, but I see, I, I, I just believe that will happen privately. I don't think we need a government program to do that separate from the national security issue. And I'm all for building a, a domestic enrichment capacity for national security if nothing emerges in the, on the private side. Well, you know, this gets to be uh, a little bit of a complicated, just to set things up, people have to understand is that when we're talking about the high enriched material, we're talking about for military purposes. We're not talking about that, uh, you know, nuclear bombs. We're talking about the nuclear Navy. Right. Because they also use, tritium. Yeah, yeah, well, tritium is, is another element yeah. that, uh, that we have to manufacture. Um, but, but the reality is, is that we have a stockpile of high enriched material, which is domestic in origin, was was created, but it's a diminishing stockpile, right? And we have no replacement mechanism for it. And what we have to do is that we have to make a replacement mechanism, so that we can continue to power nuclear submarines uh, in the future, as is just one example. Um, and as you know, uh, and you and I have talked about this, is that uh, the U.S. is contemplating building. Uh, small nuclear module reactors, which could be also be used to, to power military systems, uh, and those would require again, uh, you know, a a uh, use enriched uranium, which is of domestic origin. And so these are this is one of the so this is a much more complicated issue than just providing enriched material. It's a it's a it's a making sure that you have the origin material and how you're doing with it, and how you're stockpiling it, all is U.S. Made in the USA, basically what it boils down to. Yes, I agree with that, and we need a capacity to do that. I just get skeptical when, purposefully or not, the commercial side gets conflated with the the national security side. And I know some of that they're they they are closely connected, um, but as a as a governance or a as a public program or public policy standpoint, I think the two get way too interconnected, and it leads to not successful commercial enterprises, as we've seen in this space over time. Well, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. I, I think this is where it's one of those issues where you have to, 
the, the, uh, where the role of government is and where the role of private sector is, it has to be well-defined. Um, in my case, what I believe is, is that the U.S. should invest in a domestic capability. The size of that capability or the scaling of that capability can be determined uh, later, but we need to basically have that indigenous technology. We need to start producing material now, even if it's a small amount, yeah. just so that we can scale it up at a later date if we need to. Yeah. And that's really where it boils down to. It's, it's not that we need it, we have to do it, and we will do it. It's just a question of when and how much. Yeah. Right? Lest we bore our audience yeah. by nerding out on uh, the nuances of, of uranium enrichment in public policy, I want to touch on another, another aspect of this that we didn't get to yet, which is the industrial and, um, and medical uh, isotope issue and our reliance on Russia and also how non how the end of the cold war and our efforts to keep russia from doing bad stuff ultimately led to us yeah. being dependent on them yeah well you know i think what one things that uh, uh I, what people have to understand how would you like this as a headline okay uh last year over 100 million people were purposely contaminated with the radioactive materials and as a result tens of millions of lives were saved and benefited from it because that's what we're talking about. When we talk about, when we talk about uh, uh, medical isotopes, we're talking about, for example, just one, one area, uh, Technicine 99, uh, there was over 100 million procedures last year. And, and this, had a this has a tremendous benefit to, to us mm -hmm. as a society. And everything from sterilization, if, you're, if, you're, if you or your mothers had a hip replacement, that, that titanium ball joint was irradiated with cobalt-60 uh, to sterilize it. So, we can't really separate out isotopes from our modern society. So the question is, where do we get them from? Well, in the case of cobalt-60, 80% comes from Russia and 20% from, from Canada. Uh, technesium, we produce uh, some domestic. We're starting to produce some domestically. You used to get a lot from Canada. But at the end of the day, they're the majority of both stable and non-stable um, uh, isotopes come from Russia. And they are a major supplier globally. And the reason is, very simply, that at the end of the Cold War, as the Nunn-Luger programs, and we started looking at these, at uh, helping transition the Russian nuclear weapons complex to civilian purposes, one of the obvious transitions was to take their isotope programs, which were basically military programs, and convert them to civil purposes. And the Russians were very good at it, and we actually supported them doing so. So we actually, in some respects, the fact that we don't produce a lot of um, uh, our own domestic isotopes these days can be somewhat attributed to, to the fact that uh, we were supporting the Russians uh, transitioning into a, uh, into a commercial sector. I mean, it's one of the, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that was one of the consequences. And here we yeah, are. It, you know, it's the same it. thing with the megaton to, to megawatts yeah. thing. I, I wasn't suggesting that was a failure in any way, shape, or form, but... In fixing the way we move forward, we need to understand where we where where we came from and how some of these programs. Yeah, Travis, you what do you? What yeah, hey Paul, it's Travis. So one question that I have as the non-expert here, I'm going to ask all the stupid questions. Jack's going to ask all the really good ones. This theme that I I keep seeing it's the civilian versus military theme. I think that's what people are most worried about when they hear about nuclear energy. And, you know, when I was at the DOE, there was a, a meeting, I, I recall, I don't, I don't remember who said it, I'm not going to name names, but it was fascinating the way that folks talked about controlled versus uncontrolled energy. 
I was like, what does that mean? Oh, <laughs> controlled is, you know, like in a power plant for civilian use. Uncontrolled is when it explodes. And I was like, oh, so you mean the difference between like a power plant and a, and a bomb. Okay, controlled versus uncontrolled. What's the, what's the main difference? And you, you talk about enrichment. There's a significant difference in the amount of enrichment that goes into the civilian uses versus military, right? Right. So how would you explain to folks, especially when it comes to, all right, if we need to build the infrastructure for civilian energy, how could you reassure folks that that's not necessarily a direct line to sort of the, the bomb making that, that folks might be worried about? Well, it's a slippery slope. Um, civilian, uh, well, first of all, let me explain where the categories are. So typical nuclear reactor fuel, which is used globally, is about a 5% enriched uranium. Uh, for research reactors, uh, which, are, uh, which we have many, um, the typical amount is, 20, is 19.9, okay? It's uh, less than 20%. And in fact, the new generation of nuclear reactors, these small modular reactors, the vast majority of them are looking at these higher enriched materials at 19.9. By the way, we have no capability of producing that in the U.S. or actually anywhere. Uh, it's, uh, it all comes from downblended material from Russia. And, um, and then the stuff that is used for, for, uh, the, uh, for military purposes, for both nuclear weapons and also to power uh, military uh, uh, submarine reactors, is a, is a highly enriched material, say, you know, 80 to 90% enriched uranium. So it's a, much, it's a much higher percentage. And so, so basically, if you look at it, there's, there's a very clear demarcation in, in the nonproliferation community, and that is at 20%. When you stay below 20%, it's considered to be low enriched. And we have the safeguards regimes, we have the programs that all focus in on that. When you start to go above 20%, you're clearly edging towards a nuclear weapons program. And we see that today in Iran. Iran basically has an enrichment program. They were, they were, they were enriching material up to, to, uh, to 60%. So it's clearly they had no intention of, of using it for research reactors because they don't, or civilian reactors because they don't need it. And now I think we just heard that they're reaching up to 80%, which means they're literally within a striking distance of creating highly enriched material, which they could use in nuclear weapon in a matter of a few weeks. So this is, this is clearly the, the, so the reason, why, the reason why I'm defining that is that 20%, below 20% is pretty much for civilian purposes. Above that, you're talking about other purposes, including nuclear weapons development. So does a typical nuclear reactor, um, you know, can a nuclear reactor blow up uh, as, as a nuclear uh, Bomb? No, it can't. Uh, what we saw at Fukushima was actually a hydrogen explosion, uh, not a nuclear explosion. Um, but I, I guess, I don't know if that answers your question specifically, but I, I did want to make that distinction between uh, below 20% and above it. Yeah, and I just want to hop in here quick because yeah. I, like Travis, am a, a nuclear newbie to an extent. Um, can you define or talk about uh, what downblending is? So in the case of downblending, this is what, what we do with the Russians today. The Russians had highly enriched material, say 80 90%, because it came, came out of their weapons programs. So when they dismantled their nuclear weapons, they, they took the uranium uh, component of that, and they blended it with, with uh, natural uranium. So they took the non-enriched uranium and blended it with, with the enriched uranium so that they ended up taking and making 5% material. 
So that's that's basically what they're doing because uranium has several isotopes, but the ones that are the the, the one that is fissionable uh, is the uranium two thirty five, and so they basically took and they diluted it. Basically, that's what it is. So that when downblend, we talk about downblending, you're really diluting highly enriched uranium with low enriched uranium in order to get a a five percent material. All right. Now, Rachel, I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the nuclear renaissance? <laughs> I have. What is it? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Paul, you mentioned the nuclear renaissance earlier. What, what happened, happened in... <laughs> what, what was the... What, if, if this was 2005, and I asked you what's the nuclear renaissance, what would you tell me? Well, there was a recognition that... And this is before anybody talked about climate change or anything else. That the good old days. The good old days, right. Um, that the... Uh, the U.S. needed to have an increased base load capacity uh, for electricity. And one of the options was uh, nuclear power because, by the way, at that time, we're talking about 2005, 2006, the cost of natural gas was extremely high, right? And, in fact, com uh, chemical industries were looking at, at using nuclear power to generate hydrogen because natural gas was such a large uh, component of their, of their chemical makeup. So... There were all sorts of efforts to try to transition away from natural gas uh, usage to, to nuclear power for baseload and, and coal. And to go on about coal at that time was starting to, to lose its luster, if you will. And so there was, a, there was an effort at one point where we had 26 applications sitting before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for, for new power plants. And then something happened called fracking. And suddenly the cost of natural gas dropped by... I don't know, 75%. And the cost comparison of natural gas uh, to nuclear power was just not, you couldn't compete. In fact, natural gas couldn't compete against coal. I mean, or, uh, I mean it was uh, coal couldn't compete against natural gas. It was so cheap. And compounding that is you had all of the subsidies that were being provided for wind and solar. So the nuclear renaissance actually was crashing much before Fukushima happened. And the utilities were looking at this and saying, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to spend billions of dollars investing in, in a power plant um, when I can go out and I can basically get a whole bunch of tax subsidies for putting in wind and solar, and I can buy the backup using natural gas, and that's what happened. So, so by the time uh, you know, uh, by 2010, before even Fukushima happened, it was over. Now, so, well, Paul, yeah, go ahead. before we move on from that. Um, I don't disagree with anything you said, but I think I would argue that you left out an important element. Um, everything you said is true, but it's also true that the prices that were being thrown around for nuclear energy in the 2004, say, to 2006 time frame ended up being way, way less than what ultimately it ended up being. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to that, you also had this price inflation on the nuclear side, which I would argue, and I have argued with you before, and I can't help but to say it now because I am who I am. Um, one of the mistakes that we made from a policy standpoint was in the Energy Policy Act of 2005. And instead of addressing some of the underlying issues, some of the underlying problems in nuclear, nuclear policy, we calcified them um, further by trying to so-called kickstart the nuclear industry through a series of subsidies. 
And I think all of these dynamics worked together to kill nuclear, not one individually. You know, I, I would I would agree with you, Jack. Although you and I may may argue about certain elements on the fringes, but but to, you're right. I mean, to be blunt about it, we we entered into uh, our nuclear renaissance with a misconception that we had the ability to go back to where we were in the 1970s and 80s. We we didn't have the infrastructure for it. Uh, we didn't have the the companies that knew how to build were, were you know, th their their capabilities had atrophied. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, we were dependent upon and still are dependent upon foreign suppliers for large components. Uh, and, you know, to be honest with you, I think that when the utilities went in there, they, they were overly optimistic as to their capabilities uh, to build uh, new power plants. And so as a result, uh, when you're, you know, it, nobody had really looked at the, the hard numbers. And we saw it today, for example, when lessons learned from the Vogel uh, facility, was that you know you don't start construction until you make sure you have all your drawings in place, and and the and it was a new regulatory regime that was in place too. So there were a lot of things that that really harmed, uh, that that uh, affected those those policy decisions because we did not we'd lost the ability to build. All right, countries like China, Russia, and even Korea. Uh, were constantly building nuclear power plants, so they actually had the infrastructure and they had the capabilities. They had the trained people who knew how to do, who knew how to build nuclear power plants, and we'd lost them. And we we started off on this enterprise without really focusing in on the fundamentals of of the infrastructure needed to to actually build new plants. And I think that was one of our big problems. So I have a question about the first generation of power plants. So we're looking back. I, I guess it was early 70s, the, the phrase that still survives from that era is too cheap to meter. There were some people going into that expecting that the power plants that were being built at that time were going to be too cheap to even meter, which uh, from the consumer point of view, I love that idea. <laughs> I, I, I would love that type of power. Um, what, what specifically went wrong in terms of their expectations of this power that was going to be too cheap to meter? And then sort of how do you compare that to what, what actually happened? Yeah, well, actually, I, I don't think anybody in the nuclear industry ever said that. It was somebody else. <laughs> and, Paul, yeah. I, I, I will add a, another element to that. When you go back and look at that speech, it wasn't actually fission that they were talking about. It was fusion that they were arguing would be too cheap to meter. But because it was in the context of a speech about nuclear energy, it's been presented as the nuclear industry saying it was too cheap to meter, and it's been used ever since by people like Travis to try to undermine the credibility of nuclear power. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's my role on the show is just to regurgitate the talking points that Jack is just going to destroy. Uh, well, uh, had I known that, I would have just kept my mouth shut. So, uh, <laughs> uh, But the point being is, is that there was a high expectation, and in some respects, nuclear did meet it. Uh, because at one point it was uh, uh, a very uh, it, it, it was economic it was cost competitive, but you know again you're competing against multiple sources of energy and electrical energy, uh, and I think people have to appreciate that you know you shouldn't be dependent upon one source you have to have we need a diversity of sources, and I think nuclear is, plays an important role it still provides about twenty percent of our electrical power today. Uh, should it be higher? Yes, I think so, but. Uh, you know, at the same time, we need to have uh, uh, other sources of energy, including wind and solar, even though I'm not a particularly big fan of wind, but that's okay. You know, 
I think those are all important elements of an energy because what we have to have is modern societies have to have sustainable and reliable energy grids. And if you don't have that, you cannot have national security. You can't, your, your energy security is, is at risk if you don't have those things. And that means you have to have nuclear, you still have to have coal, you still have to have natural gas, wind, and solar, you have to have all sources. You know, one of the reasons I'm so optimistic about nuclear, I don't know what the time frame is, but why I believe that nuclear will power our future is I think it can be competitive. And the reason I think that it can be competitive is because, two, well, two reasons. We talked a little bit, just touched on, we don't need to get a lot into it, but the early days of nuclear power, you did see power plants being built really quickly, like from, from licensing to criticality of four years. Um, and they were built at affordable prices. So we know that we can do this. Um, we've done it before. And the, uh, it, you know, I know times change and whatever, but the, the, the underlying circumstances and the, the, the policy characteristics and regulatory variables can all be changed. So like we can do it. And people don't remember. I know, Paul, you know this, but people don't know how quickly um, Rickover went from a, a, a nuclear submarine on a piece of paper to a nuclear submarine in the ocean. It was like four years. This is at the beginning, and you were saying that, you know, we haven't built them. Well, back then, nobody built them. Mm -hmm. So, like, I know that we can do this. Um, the, the, my, my second um, point of optimism is that we haven't seen modern industry meet nuclear power in a way where government's not creating barriers. And we haven't seen that, that nexus of modern industry with nuclear energy without government literally controlling and failing one-third of the fuel cycle, which is the, the, um, the, the waste side. So there, there's so much room for efficiency and for modern practices that I would argue we have no idea how successful nuclear can be, but we do know that it was at one point. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to make a full pivot here, but... I feel like it would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that I've worked with Jack for five years now. And if I, I have heard one word or phrase come out of his mouth more in those five years, it has been Yucca Mountain. And I know that you've worked in the nuclear waste management space, and I think that that is another concern for a lot of, a lot of folks in the U.S., around, around the world, that nuclear beyond has this misnomer of being unsafe. It's what do we do with the spent fuel? Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? And Jack, obviously, no yucca guy. Um, <laughs> if you can talk about that too a bit. I'll shut up. I want to hear what Paul has to say. Well, first of all, let me, let me say one thing um, because I think it's important to understand. When it comes to energy security, why is nuclear important? Because if I have a one-car garage, I can store a year's worth of energy for a million homes in that one car garage. Okay. That's what nuclear provides. And that's, you know, that's one big truckload. By the way, that's also the amount of spent fuel that's generated every year is what would fit in easily fit in a one car garage. So, so spent fuel is not this huge issue, but it is an important one. Uh, and I say huge in terms of, of management. Our problem is, is that the U S government, made a commitment many years ago, a sovereign obligation to take the possession of, of our spent nuclear fuel. This was part of a, 
it would take many hours to explain the, the history behind that. And we reneged on that obligation. And we reneged, reneged on it. In part, sometimes it was technical, but largely it was political. And today we have no back end. We have no program for back end. And in fact, the organization that statutorily was defined to do that, which is called the Office of Radioactive Civilian Radioactive Waste Management, was literally destroyed and removed, and uh, all of its records were sent off to archives. And so we don't have anything today that even begins to, to look at how you manage the back end of spent fuel. And uh, honestly, that's been three administrations and multiple Congresses, and nobody wants to do it because it's too heavy a lift. So it's a failure of, of the administration and of Congress, and to a certain extent of the nuclear industry itself. And the reason is because the spent fuel that's accumulating at nuclear power plants is being safely and adequately managed. No problem. And the utilities are being paid to manage that material because it wasn't picked up by the DOE in 1998. Or 1998. And guess who pays for that storage cost? It's you and me, the taxpayer. We're paying so somewhere around half a billion dollars a year to pay the utilities to store these the spent fuel that's sitting at their plants. And that's just, there's no solution going forward. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm waiting for Jack to, uh, to go out there and convince Congress they need to start doing something right away. I got the plan. I have a question about the storage pools. So yeah. on site at these power plants, there's a pool where the spent fuel rods are, I guess, sitting in the bottom of a pool. I had heard, and again, this is me, I'm just going to bring all of the idiot ideas that I've ever heard. I'm just going to bring them here. You guys can crush them if they're wrong. I had heard that if one were so inclined, of course, this is probably not allowed and very illegal, but hypothetically, if someone were allowed into that pool, that water is so good at containing the radiation from the spent fuel that you might actually be receiving more radiation from the ambient air on the top side of your body than you would from the spent fuel uh, only a few meters below you in water. Can you give that any support? Is that is that the craziest idea you've ever heard? This is coming from an engineer who I think knows the space, so I, I'm hoping I'm right this time. Well, uh, I, I personally, I wouldn't do it, but uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you what the dose, uh, doses would be. Although we do send divers into into these spent fuel pools, so uh, but that's for, for oh, other interesting. purposes. Yeah. Uh, As a side note, I I love the idea of pointing out that there is ambient radiation that that that's just sort of a fact of life, and we can put it in terms of bananas. I I, I love that framing because it's it takes all the scariness out of it. It's like, well, it's not a nuclear only phenomenon. It's bigger than that, and you get it from bananas. You get it from you know your everything bones and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and in fact, the, the, what people have to recognize is that the radiation is natural and. The human species evolved in a actually in a world that was more radioactive than it is today. So it comes in every form that you can imagine, from cosmic rays to radium to tritium, which you find naturally, uh, and potassium, which is in uh, potassium forty, which is in bananas and other things. So, so we are, you know, everybody and everything is radioactive. The only question is that how much. Uh, by the way, just just a clarification: the reason why the this water in the pools is for cooling, not really for shielding. I mean, you, obviously, you get a lot of shielding with the water too, but but it's really to keep the the uh, the fuel cool, and it has to sit there for about five years before you can transfer it out to a dry cast storage. At that time, it's cooled down enough that you can 
you can put it into a dry storage, not a wet storage situation. Okay. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to make light of the storage issue. I just wanted to highlight that it's yeah. in fact safe, even though it's, you know, a pain in the neck and expensive and all of that. It, it is actually safe where it is. Yeah, I agree. And, and in fact, I think uh, the commission, in fact, wrote a, uh, uh, about this a few years ago where they basically said, look, you, as long as you have an active licensee, which the utilities are, uh, you can store it either in dry casts or in fuel pools because it's being safely and adequately managed. And that's really the point. Uh, ultimately, it makes sense just from a cost standpoint to transfer this into dry cast because then you don't have to maintain the pool. Remember, there's water chemistry. There's all sorts of pumps and everything else that you have to run to keep the water you know, nice and clean inside a, a fuel pool. But uh, you know, that's, that's the reason why you want to ultimately transfer into a cast. It it's, uh, makes, makes sense. Paul, we are running up oh, yeah. towards the, the end of the, the, the podcast here. There are literally a hundred things that I want to ask you about, and we're just not going to have time. But I do want to close, at least on our nuclear discussion, um, on a question about this. And I'll hand it over to you guys, if you, see if you have any close, final questions. Um, I know you did a lot of work on Fukushima. I, this is an impossible thing I'm going to ask you. But could you quickly tell us sort of what happened there, whether or not we need to be worried about that happening here, and what's the current state of things in Fukushima? Okay, let's talk about what happened in Fukushima. There was a massive earthquake and a tsunami, and it basically damaged the power plant's ability to, to, uh, uh, to run their cooling pumps in their, in their reactors. And that's, this, it created what's called a condition called station blackout. Now, in the U.S., after 9-11, the NRC and, and the National Security Apparatus of the U.S. study what would be the impact of a large aircraft crashing into a nuclear power plant. So we had, we've designed, and we worked with the industry, we had mitigating measures. By the way, we shared those mitigating measures internationally, including with the Japanese. And the Japanese did not implement some of those, and that's the reason why Fukushima happened. Okay, So just to give you an example, and what happened at Fukushima was is that the fuel, because they couldn't cool the pools, the water evaporated, the fuel was, was uh, exposed, and it melted, and it created a hydrogen explosion. So that's basically what happened. Now what today is that Fukushima is in decommissioning. Uh, they are storing lots and lots of contaminated water on site, and there's been an international uproar about them discharging that, that water into the ocean, even though that's probably the most sane way of doing it. I personally have go to Fukushima. Uh, well, I've been there many times. I was there just a couple of weeks ago looking at their water discharge system. What they're proposing to do is to discharge some, some treated water, which contains tritium, which, by the way, is the standard practice. Every nuclear reactor produces tritium. It also it is discharged either into the air or into the water every year. And the U.S. discharges far more than what's stored at the Fukushima site. Hey, Paul, can you put that into context? Because a lot of people hear that and be like, wait, what? <laughs> We don't want that happening. So can you just real quickly, is that okay that that's happening? How, how, what should we think about that? Well, the point being is that tritium is natural, okay? And the mm -hmm. ocean is full of tritium and always has been. And anything contains water from the fruit you drink to, well, to you, Jack. You've got tritium in you. and you. Well, I get know. I have tritium yeah. in me. Yeah. I know I do. Yeah. Well, uh -huh. you're a glowing personality. What can I tell you? <laughs> so uh, the point being is, is that, that tritium is natural, and the proposals that the Japanese have, as well as the U.S. nuclear industry and international industry, when, when they discharge, they discharge down to a, such a low level that it's almost really at background. 
So it's maybe it's a little bit above background, but the point being is, is that it's not at a harmful level. And the naturally occurring tritium that you find in seawater or drinking water anyplace else, that's what we're talking about. So we're not talking about harmful level, levels of radioactivity being released into the environment. Okay. Very good. Um, now, I've heard one quick follow-up. I've heard, I forget where I, who I heard say this, but something along the lines of the, the area around the Fukushima reactor, um, though it's often described as being highly contaminated and people consider it as being highly contaminated, it's actually not very contaminated. And the problems there are primarily one of perception, not of reality. Is that true or false, or what's your your, your take on well, that? Well, it's kind of a combination of things. There are some areas in the, that are still they that they have limited access to because they really there there's some hot spots and they still have to go in mm -hmm. there and clean them out. Uh, but to a large extent, the area around Fukushima is is open. But you remember, there's this large evacuation, and people have not returned. So in some ways, there are ghost towns that are around these areas. And the reason why people haven't returned is because you know to be blunt about it, there's there's uh, there are no gas stations. There's no grocery stores. Those have not been reestablished. Re and mm -hmm. so, uh, like in one township, uh, I know that I, I went to, only about 35% of the people have returned that were evacuated, even though they've been able to return for up to five years. They just really haven't done so, in part because they, they you know, they moved on. They, they, they moved to other towns, they moved to other cities, and they're not going to go back because there's no jobs for them. So it's really a big economic development problem in that area right now. Thank you very much. I want to open it up to Travis and Rachel, see if you have any follow-up, final question. Yeah, my, my main question is, how do we get it right in terms of U.S. policy going forward? I mean, we've talked about a few examples of what not to do. How do we get it right? And I've, I've heard some examples like maybe we don't need the same amount of rigor on that you would apply to a two-gigawatt plant if it's going to be small and modular and use the same technology but significantly scaled down. Are there things, practical things that U.S policymakers can can do to, to sort of to fix it and, and and to make it easier to be I'm not saying too cheap to meter although that's still the goal mm -hmm. and it's crazy that that was fusion because that's that's been 30 years off for about 30 years now mm -hmm. um, and will probably continue to be and it will always be 30 years off anyways it, what, what what can we do to to essentially fix our US policy to to if we want a 2.0 how, how do we encourage that Wow. Um, well, let's go back to Jack and my favorite topic. It would be useful if we actually had a program that dealt with the back end uh, because then it reduces the uncertainty of issues, okay? And also you can bring into alignment uh, as to what you actually want to do with that material. Uh, so I personally think that, uh, that uh, addressing the back end, reestablishing a government effort to, uh, to manage that is an essential part of moving forward. Having said that, I think what we're seeing in the commercial sector is a huge amount of innovation. And that innovation is, is tackling some of the age issues that we age old issues that we've had about, about uh, risk management with, uh, with nuclear power. Um, the designs that are coming forward, the, the technologies, the fuels, this is, it, this is truly a renaissance in terms of, of uh, innovation. What I would say is the, the, 1.0 is really just a repeat of the 1970s, but this is a really new generation of reactors that are coming forward and the thought processes and people there. Now, our regulatory system is still somewhat like 1.0, but um, it, it's, it's not to say the NRC isn't capable of change, 
uh, but the NRC is also limited in what they can do. Um, and so there's a lot of effort going on right now to look at how to, uh, uh, you know, improve the NRC to change the way that it looks at, uh, uh, at not, not the way it looks at safety, but the way that it can enable uh, these uh, small, uh, these new reactor companies to come forward to, to gain some experience and uh, to interact with them earlier. So that's part of what's going on right now currently. But I, I really do think that people look at how how innovative some of these ideas are and how we are fundamentally changing really for the world. Uh, the U.S. technology is really leading the way in terms of, of, of restructuring how we approach uh, nuclear power and making it safer and uh, hopefully more affordable. But that is yet to be proven. Great. Um, and then one other question for our listeners kind of just broadly um, What's one little nugget you'd leave them with about nuclear in general? Is there is there something we can look at that 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 shows kind of how we're progressing in the nuclear industry right now? Is there headlines, news, anything that we can can monitor, stay on top of, um, just to see where nuclear is going? Uh, well, first of all, if if you look at what progress is being made at DOE and what's called the ARDP projects, which is there's two new generation of reactors, ones. Uh, designed by X Energy, which is a gas-cooled reactor, and the other one is by TerraPower, which is a sodium-fast reactor. Those are the two uh, most uh, uh, most advanced uh, designs right now for a new generation reactors that are they're advanced reactors. Uh, those are progressing, but they are also coming up with hiccups. There's things they're finding. For example, uh, availability of fuel. Both TerraPower and X Energy were in the process of acquiring fuel from Russia. Now they both committed they will not buy fuel from Russia. Uh, so, so, that's, so those are some of the hiccups, but the, the advancement of their licensing process, their approval process and technology is, is really what's fundamental. And I will say this is that other countries are following exactly what we're doing, and they're looking very carefully at what the U.S. is doing in terms of licensing uh, these, te- these new technologies. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you, Paul. That was awesome. I really appreciate your time. Um, now, don't leave yet, though, because okay. we have one more segment that, uh, that we like to do. We call it the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we hope that you chime in. Travis takes the lead on this one. It's sort of a quick-fire discussion on the latest energy news, so um, I might ask you what you think. Feel free to, to chime in as you like. And with that, Travis, what do you got for us? Yeah, we're going to shoot from the hip like in the Western films. <laughs> Spaghetti nice. Western, good, bad, ugly, shooting from the hip. The, so... I think a good thing that happened is we're finally getting output from Vogel Unit 3. Is it Unit 3? Is, is, yes. is that correct? Three, 3 and 4 are coming online. 3 is the one that's already starting to produce. Uh, that is significant for a bunch of reasons. Actually, I wonder, Paul, if you could explain to folks sort of what, what, what's the big deal about Vogel 3 coming online. Okay, Vogel 3 is a first uh, uh, Westinghouse reactor, new generation Westinghouse reactor called an AP-1000. It's the first one to be built in the U.S., uh, there are four that were built in China, but this is the first one that's built in the U.S. And it was delayed, and it cost overruns because of exactly what I said before. Um, you know, we had our our ability to construct uh, these plants had atrophied, but now Vogel is now they they, uh, they 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 they're connecting to the grid. So in some respects, if you look at it, it's, it's the taxi meters now starting to run backwards. All right, so they were accumulating costs, but now they're actually earning money. So it's a huge event because these plants are not um, – these plants are going to be around for, for 80 years, maybe even 100 years. I mean, that's how robust they are. 
So, so when you look at the cost of building one of these plants, you, you, can't, you can't look at this like a 40-year mortgage. You've got to look at it more like a 60-year mortgage. And that's, and, and that's one of the problems that we actually have in the industry today. So we have to look. Nuclear power plant is a, is a, it's a highly expensive upfront, but boy, it lasts for a long time. And yeah, that's what's I'm going on at Vogel right now. I'm hoping it runs for more like 100 years. I, so that's the good. I would say the bad this time, there's always plenty to choose from. I'm going to talk about something that's near and dear to Rachel's heart, which is the idea that cities and I think now states are thinking about just categorical bans of all new gas hookups. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about where that's going and sort of who's doing what? Yeah, sure. Um, most recently, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area Quality Management District just placed a ban on natural gas, natural gas water heaters and furnaces by 2031. I know that they weren't banning natural grass in no. San Francisco. <laughs> nope. They love the natural grass. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so this is that's the most recent. Um, California has definitely been the state that has implemented, or at least localities in California, have implemented the most uh, bans or on, on natural gas. Uh, but we're seeing this across the U.S., unfortunately. New York has been considering a statewide ban, which would be the the second of its kind. Uh, Washington State last year introduced a ban on natural gas through um, building code requirements. So there's there's a lot in the space, unfortunately, to talk about, um, and and it's picking up steam. Um, Rachel, let me ask you. I mean, these are all really dumb policies, um, but if they're happening happening at the city level. You know, let them do stupid things. This could never happen at the national level, could it? Uh, it very well could, because the, um, I mean, as we know, as we've as we spoken about before, the Biden administration has come out from the very start, anti-fossil fuels, anti-conventional fuels, just pushing that agenda in basically every way, shape, and form. The Consumer Product Safety Commission caught some heat a couple months ago um, about a proposed ban on natural gas stoves, but then rolled it back. And now they've come out since and said, well, we are going to release a request for information and gather some some more information from the public and from academics on how safe these are. And well, what are we going to do? Maybe we will ban them. Basically, they're kind of teeing up for that. So hopefully that doesn't happen. But I hate when bureaucrats start gathering information. It we never, all? ever leads any place good. <laughs> well, and here's here's the scary part is that you could get a de facto ban using efficiency standards, too. So we see we, we saw this with of those. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, we saw this with the incandescent bulbs. They were never categorically banned. There was an efficiency standard that got so tight that they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't meet the standard. So it was sort of a, oh, we're not going to take away your stuff. We're just mm-hmm. going to increase efficiency. But if it has the practical effect of taking away the stuff, then, yeah, we, we should talk about it like a ban. That's exactly what it is. Right. Now, Paul, I'm not trying to put you into a, a weird situation. So, of course, don't answer this um, if you don't want to. But what do you think of uh, gas stove bans? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, you know, anybody who thinks we're going to do it with hydrocarbon infrastructure doesn't even understand the United States. We literally have trillions of dollars of infrastructure. We're not going to ban it overnight from from the pipeline that runs into my house, heats my furnace to you know gas station and everything else. So, so the fact is is that, that that we will continue to be dependent upon hydrocarbons for a long time to come. Uh, second thing is, all right, so you implement all this stuff, where are you going to get the electricity? 
because it doesn't come out of air. You need to have transmission lines, which are almost impossible to build anywhere, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's nice to 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 uh, want to transition your energy uh, supply, but if you don't have the arrangements needed to bring that supply to your home and where it's going to get produced and how it's going to get there, then what are you really accomplishing other than basically sending people off to the hardware store to buy generators, gas generators, by the way? But we have thoughts on what they're trying to accomplish, but we won't subject you to our crazy um, conspir conspiracy theories today. I know you are you have a reputation to uphold. So. Uh, well, hang around with you, Jack. I've already <laughs> ruined it. So uh. very good. That's what I, that's what I aim to do. Of course, I I do want to say one optimistic thing about the infrastructure point because it's it's incredibly valid, and especially let's say we're closing a lot of coal plants. That's true. What if instead of building new transmission, we just repower the coal sites with nuclear well is anybody thinking about that how what, what well that's what, what are the economics there and uh is that going to become more of an option as folks realize how hard it is to build transmission well that's exactly what pacific corp is doing right now in Kemmerer, wyoming and they've teamed up with TerraPower. they're building a, a sodium fast reactor their proposal is to build uh to close a coal plant in Kemmerer, wyoming a town of three thousand people by the way i'm from wyoming so i actually know where this is and, uh, and they're actually going to be uh, putting a nuclear power on the grid. And they're actually not selling the power into Wyoming. They're selling it into Utah and California. Um, but, uh, that's, but that's what they're doing. And they, they've actually, uh, they've actually uh, there was a press release a few months ago where uh, Pacific Corp is working with, um, with TerraPower to look at five additional sites in the Wyoming area at coal plants that they would close and replace with uh, small modular uh, power plants, nuclear power plants. So, yes. Uh, nuclear to coal is a big thing and is being looked at very carefully because you have that infrastructure in place and you're just, you're just, you just got a no, new way of producing electricity by adding a, a small plant there. All right. To, to close out the good, bad, the ugly, the, so you talked about hydrocarbons not going away. Here's, here's one thing that I'm concerned about because I like internal combustion engines, call me old fashioned, but we're seeing, I would characterize it as the death of the American car. I mean, we have uh, General Motors agreeing or they've pledged to not produce internal combustion engines after, I don't recall the year exactly, is it 2035, 2040? They've, they've put a date certain on, on the end of it. And now we're seeing Stellantis, the former Fiat Chrysler, they've said essentially the same thing. And there was an article about, you know, this is your last chance to buy the last good V8 you know, Dodge sports car. So fascinating to me that, you know, is this really the last chance to buy the American muscle car? And Jack, I, I want to get your thoughts on this. Is this, I consider this the ugly, like this is one of the most American things you can do is if you want to, if right. you want to, you can buy a gas guzzler. That's the this American is thing. Real ugly. As far as I'm concerned, the mistake you made, you said uh, to formerly Fiat Chrysler, you need to go further. Dodge Mopar, because any red-blooded American knows that Mopar made some of the coolest muscle cars ever created. So I actually, I have a story quickly. I grew up near Rockingham. There's the Rockingham Motor Speedway. This is in North Carolina. There was the Mopar Drag Race Day, where I actually got to see the old Dodge Challengers souped up do, you know, these quarter-mile drag races. It was yeah. amazing. 
just the amount of power. And there's also the Ramjet. I don't the, know if you ever saw the Ramjet. The only they, problem they put the, a they put a jet engine on a truck, and it was amazing. The but, only problem with your story is that you sh- that you, one should not race Mopar vehicles at a racetrack. They should be doing it on the street, like men. <laughs> I imagine there was some of that too. I was just a kid, Jack. I was going to the family-friendly stuff, but that it's—it seems ugly to me. This is the death of the American car. I, I think we should be talking about it. I think so too. I think that people don't realize that what's happening. You know, it's easy for people to look down their noses at you know say, "Why do you need a a thousand horsepower muscle car?" Well, because, Why not? Yeah, exactly. Why not? <laughs> well, and um, the, there's an equity piece to this too, right? So if you want to get an incandescent incandescent light bulb you still can you just get these exceptions where you get a vintage whatever i'm I'm doing a specialty lighting thing that's what it's going to become with cars too are you just like well i'm i'm going to get this exception because i have a specialty car that rich people will continue to be able to afford rich people can do all this stuff all the time the trouble is the average person if you want to go out and buy you know an aggressive a v8 a gas guzzler that the the middle class is getting cut out of this yes Paul, do you have thoughts about muscle cars, American muscle cars? Hey, you know, we're talking about fusion, so I'm waiting for Back to the Future so I can have a fusion machine in my DeLorean, okay? So that's what I'm waiting for, guys. All right, fair enough. Has it ever bothered you that Doc Brown calls it a 1.21 gigawatts? (laughs) Is that that right? He says gigawatts, and I've always been like, that's that's not how it's pronounced. Anyway. (laughs) Well, Travis, despite your, again, effort to leave us on a pessimistic note, I um, I don't think they're going to achieve this. I think that that Dodge will figure out that Americans continue to want muscle cars. Um, they're fun, they're American, people like them, and certainly we shouldn't be forced to buy them, but we should be allowed to buy them. And I think ultimately the the American consumer will win. Here's my one plea: if slash when these companies go bankrupt because they made such a poor choice in banning internal combustion engines. When they go bankrupt, let's not bail them out. That's my one plea. Here, here. Well, we'll leave on that note. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen to the Power Hour. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. If you didn't like us, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone, please. Travis, Rachel, Paul, thank you all for for participating today, Paul, especially thank you. You are great. I very much appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sign up. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be listening to your next one. <laughs> very good. I appreciate that. Um, so there you go, folks. Remember to email us at where, Travis? The Power Hour at heritage.org. That is we're an organization. That is .org. <laughs> Not thank a .com you. business. Very good. Thank you all. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks a lot, Jack. Bye-bye.